Hello, everybody. My name is Angie, and I'm here to bring you the stories of things you wouldn't want to experience even in your worst nightmares. Now, the following podcast contains explicit language and content which may be offensive to some listeners and or inappropriate for children. The following is intended for mature audiences only. Welcome back, everybody. I know it's been a minute since... I've recorded my last episode, but let me just say, life has been busy, and I know that's the general common excuse that everybody makes when they're late on something. However, comma, um, this time, I was dealing with life, like everybody else does. But, I mean, like, at work, it got really busy, because quarter four is typically the busiest season of the year for us, and then I was dealing with two classes, which normally isn't such a bad thing for me. Um, however, one of the classes that I that I took was like seriously kicking my ass and I barely made it out alive with a B, but I'm going to take that win. And then unexpectedly, I had to get my gallbladder taken out, <laughs> which was really funny, but not funny because I was experiencing some like really weird symptoms um, from May, like May of 2023 is when I particularly started noticing that something like just wasn't right and then I was like slowly gaining weight and I was like feeling kind of like sickly and then a week after my birthday I ended up in the emergency room because I legitimately thought that I was having a heart attack (laughs) and um so I was taking the ER and they're like nope not a heart attack but follow up with your primary care physician and um coming to find out uh, I had two more of those attacks before I actually saw a doctor and turns out that I had a terrible gallbladder filled with many stones and um, I had saw the doctor that Thursday and then by Friday my surgery was scheduled and then the following Monday I was getting cut open it was it was gonna get gone and Angie under anesthesia is a completely different person. She don't know who she is. Uh, One time I woke up thinking that I was Beyonce. Um, I guess during this particular episode of anesthesia, I woke up asking if I had missed Christmas. And I had asked if they made gingerbread houses without me. (laughs) And then I had asked, um can we make gingerbread houses and then I just kept patting my stomach saying ow I was I guess I I was really concerned about Christmas when I woke up from my surgery that was my first priority but I'm doing a lot better now I feel great I feel better than what I had been feeling for like the last six months and it's so crazy how like quickly an organ can just betray you (laughs) like that um, but I'm glad to be back with you guys, and I promise that 2024 is going to be better. I'm going to do better, and I'm going to bring you more episodes than what I did last year. Cheers to episode five. So this particular episode, I do want to dedicate it to one of my really good friends. So when she hears this, which hopefully will be tomorrow, um, happy birthday. Her birthday is tomorrow, and... I hope that she enjoys her day. I hope that she gets all the things that she wants. I hope that she has beautiful dreams about cats. 
And uh, I hope that she likes the surprise that I'm going to leave for her tomorrow that she doesn't know about, but she will find out about. Hopefully she listens to this episode after she gets her gift. <laughs> but happy birthday, Wendy. So let's get into it. Um, this particular case, we are in Britain. Um, I know my last episode, we were overseas, and I'm going to keep it overseas. And this case is about a couple, a murderous couple. We are talking about Fred and Rosemary West. And these two were not the typical couple that you you would want to get together. Something about, like, what's crazy to me is, like, there's murderers, and then there's murderers who find another murderer, and then they get into a relationship together. Like, when I'm dating, I like to find common interests, like, eh, when I'm dating. I don't date. What are you talking about? I'm married. Um, when I did date, the common interest is like, hey, like, I like kayaking. What do you like? Hiking? Cool. We're kind of outdoorsy people. No, this person's like, I like to kill people. And then the date's like, okay, what's your preferred choice of weapon? And they're just hitting it off. That's weird to me. But I just want to ask for forgiveness for any mispronunciations that I will most likely make. Okay. Well, so the crimes of Fred and Rosemary West utterly shocked the people of of Britain when they emerged in 1994. It was not just simply about the nine bodies that were found buried under the couple's house in Gloucester. It's not that one of the bodies belonged to their own daughter, Heather. It was not even the discovery of other bodies belonging to Fred's first wife and their child. Um... What was almost unbearable unbearable for people to accept was that this carnage had apparently taken place in a family home full of children and visitors, and the house was presided over by an apparently very happy couple. But before we get into this couple's marriage, we've got to get into Fred's background first. So let's talk about Fred. Fred, my guy was born Frederick Walter Stephen West, who was born on September 29th at Biggerton College, much Marsley, Hertfordshire. He was the first surviving child of Walter Stephen West and his mother, Daisy Hannah Hill. Fred came from a poor family, um, who were also farm workers, and they were mutually protective. His dad was the disciplinarian and his mom was overprotective. So in 1946, the family moved to Moorcourt Cottage that was right next to Moorcourt Farm on the outskirts of Mulch Marsley, where Fred's father was working as a milking herdsman and a harvest hand. The cottage that they lived in had no electricity and was heated by um, a fire. And in 1951, Fred's mom had given birth, or by 1951... Uh, Fred's mom had given birth to eight children, um, which six of whom survived, and Fred just happened to be his mom's favorite. And he was known as a mom's boy. However, he did seek companionship with his siblings. Uh, Each of the kids were expected to perform chores, as I would expect to if I had that many kids. And all the kids did seasonal work, and the girls were 
in charge of picking hops and strawberries while the boys were harvesting wheat and hunting rabbits. So the necessity of working to earn a living and to survive instilled a strong work work ethic in Fred, who just also happened to develop a lifelong habit of petty theft. So classmates used to talk about Fred in a way of describing him as um, scruffy, dim, lethargic, and how he was always in trouble. And Fred throughout his life remained barely literate, but he had some very, very good skills when it came to woodwork and artwork. And so he ended up leaving school at the age of 15. Um, and that would be in 1956. And he started working as a laborer at Moorcourt Farm. So Fred later did accuse his mother of sexually abusing him at the age of 12. Um, and then he also stated that he started engaging in acts of bestiality in his early teens. And that he thought that incest was normal. Um, because his father was uh, sexually also abusing his sisters. Um, however, one of his brothers did claim that all of that was fake and it never happened. So by 1957, Fred and his brother, John, frequently socialized at a youth club in nearby Ledbury, where his distinct and guttural Hedfordshire accent marked him as a country pumpkin. He aggressively pestered women and girls, which or whom he objectified as sources of pleasure that he used as he saw fit. And this is so disrespectful, but he would he would go up to the women and grab them. Um like he would just like approach the woman and then fondle them. And if a girl just happened to accept his advances, um one thing would lead to the next, and the women would typically actually find his sexual performance unsatisfying because they would state that he was more interested in pleasuring himself than he was actually, you know, pleasuring the woman. Um, it, <laughs> I'm leaving personal thoughts out of this. So, um, at the age of 17, mind you, okay... <laughs> He's still a child doing this. That's what's bothering me. Um, at age 17, Fred suffered a fractured skull, a broken arm, and a broken leg in a motorcycle accident. Um, he was unconscious for about seven days and walked with braces for a couple of months. And because of this incident, he um, became really scared of hospitals and started growing like into like having these fits of rage. And two years later, he suffered another head injury when a girl um, that he happened to grope um, punched him. <laughs> and it caused him to fall down two, two stairs, or two flights of stairs. In June of 1961, Fred's 13-year-old sister, Kitty, told their mom that Fred had been graping her since the previous December, and she was now pregnant with his child. Um, Fred was arrested and freely admitted to police that he had been molesting young girls since his early teens and asked, doesn't everybody do it? 
He was tried on November 9th at the Hedfordshire Assizes. Although disgusted by her son's action, Fred's mom um, defended her son. And immediately prior to her scheduled testimony, his sister actually changed her mind and she refused to testify. And the case ended up collapsing. Um, After this, Fred's family um, disowned him. And his mom kicked him out of the household. And he had to move um, with his aunt, Violet. Um, by mid-1962, he had reconciled with his, his parents, but not so much with the rest of his family. So now we're going to get into Fred's first wife, who's known as Catherine Costello. Um, she goes by Rena. And so Rena came from Coatbridge, Lanarkshire. And according to the book that I pulled some of this research from, they said that she had a history or a record of delinquency and prostitution, but her and Fred ended up meeting um, in September of 1962 when he was 21 years old. They were at a dance, and they dated for a couple of months before she returned to Scotland. Um, Rena was pregnant by an Asian bus driver at the time of her marriage to Fred, and may have relocated to Glasgow uh, from Glasgow to England due to the members of her family expressing their displeasure with her being pregnant with a mixed-race baby. She married Fred in Ledbury on the 17th of November, with the only person in attendance being Fred's younger brother, John. The couple initially lived in Fred's aunt's, Fred's aunt's home and then moved to Coatbridge, where Fred worked as an ice cream van driver. Um, Rena's daughter, Charmaine, was born in March of 1963, and to explain the child's mist, mixed ancestry, Rena and Fred said that Rena had had a miscarriage, and to deal with the sadness, they had adopted Charmaine. So after Charmaine was born, the couple relocated to Savoy Street in the Bridgeton district of Glasgow. In July of 1964, Rena and Fred did have their own daughter named Anna Marie, that child was born at the couple's Savoy Street home, and then they had a nanny, Issa McNeil, and neighbors of the West recall Rena as a considerate mother struggling to bring up two children. Fred did not treat the girls very kindly. It was said that he kept the girls in the bottom of a bunk bed with bars fitted to the space between the bunks, effectively caging them, and then they were only out a like, allowed out and about while he was at work. So, it was through their nanny that the West got to know the nanny's 16-year-old friend named Anne McFall, who was grieving the loss of her boyfriend in a workplace accident. Um, McFall spent a lot of time with the West family, and knowing Fred's, like, disgustingly questionable past, this isn't great. Um, Fred later admitted to having engaged in numerous affairs in the early years of his marriage and fathered one illegitimate child with a woman from the Gorballs. When Rena discovered that her husband was cheating, 
she started cheating. <laughs> so she started an affair with a man named John McLachlan. And then on one occasion, Fred actually caught them hugging. And so he punched Rena. He didn't punch the man. And his reasoning for punching Rena and not the man is because he said that he knew that he could punch women and nothing would really happen to him. He knew that he could not punch a man because he was too much of a... I'm not going to use the word that I was going to use, but he was too much of a coward um, to actually, like, square up with a man. So, as a coward as he is, he did try to take out a knife, and he did, he did end up, like, kind of cutting McLaughlin's tummy. Um, but then McLaughlin just punched him for the second time, and Fred just, like, gave up on trying to, like, to defend himself. So... Him and his wife, or Fred and his wife, Rena, they both continue having their own affairs after this. Um, however, Fred kept abusing Rena. So Rena would show up and meet McLaughlin, and she would have bruises and black eyes. And McLaughlin was kind of getting tired of it. And when it came, like, apparent that obviously, like, Fred was, was beating Rena really bad... McLaughlin went and beat Fred's ass. So, <laughs> um, McLaughlin also did witness that um, an instance where F uh, Fred's daughter or stepdaughter Charmaine came and had asked him for an ice cream, and Fred ended up um, smacking her or hitting her like really hard across the the head, and McLaughlin went and beat his ass again for that. Um. Fast forward to November 4th of 1965, Fred, quote unquote, accidentally ran over and killed a small boy with his van, with the ice cream truck, just to be clear. Um, he was cleared of any wrongdoing by police, but he feared that the neighborhood was not going to put up with him running over a child with his ice cream van. So he decided that he should pack up um, Charmaine. Anna Marie and get the heck out of there. So Rena did end up joining him in February of 1966. Um and the nanny came and the nanny's friend came <laughs> and they all were like living in a in a caravan. Um shortly after the move, Fred found employment driving a lorry for a local abattoir. By early 1966, Fred had begun to exhibit dominance and control over all three women. He was also prone to violent mood swings, and Rena and McNeil typically bore the brunt of his fury. And Fred physically attacked his stepdaughter more than once. It was also reported that he actually began to start sexually abusing Charmaine, and he encouraged his wife Rena to turn to prostitutions to help supplement the income. To escape Fred's domestic abuse and increasingly sadistic sexual demands, Rena phoned her former lover, McLaughlin, um, begging for him to come save her, and McNeil, and the children. Together, McLaughlin, Rena, and McNeil devised a plan. He and McNeil's boyfriend, John Trotter, would secretly drive to Bishop's Cleve and McLaughlin's mini and discreetly take Rena, the children, and McNeil back to, back to Scotland. 
uh, McFall, mind you, this is like the 16-year-old girl, had by this stage become super infatuated with Fred, where Fred promised to marry her. It kind of seems like she did end up telling Fred about the plan because he arrived at the spot where everybody was supposed to meet at. And McFall was very calm when she informed McNeil that she intended to remain with Fred to work as the children's nanny. Um, A fight then ensued between Fred and McLaughlin, resulting in Fred being struck several times as he clutched onto Charmaine and Anna Marie. The police were called and McLaughlin, Trotter, McNeil, and Rena left, with Fred threatening to kill Rena if he ever saw her again. So to ensure that her daughters were safe, Rena did travel back to England to visit Charmaine and Anna Marie when they were living um, with Fred at Bishop's Cleave. Despite initially maintaining her friendship with McFall, Rena soon began to resent her matriarchal presence around her daughters. On eleventh, on the eleventh of October, in an act of resentment, Rena stole some belongings from Fred's caravan and returned to Glasgow. She was arrested the following month and returned to Gloucester to face trial. On the 29th of November, Rena was sentenced to three years proba- probation, where Fred testified at the hearing, admitting that he and McFall were living together, but falsely claiming McFall intended to return to Scotland imminently. After the trial, McFall moved into a caravan at the Timberlake Caravan Park. Rena alternated between living with Fred and returning to Glasgow. Letters McFall posted to her family and McNeil in Glasgow between 1966 and 1967 indicated that she believed a relationship with Fred could offer her a better life than what she had experienced in Scotland, and she kept trying to persuade Fred to actually divorce his wife and marry her instead. Sounds like a pick-me. I take back my comment about calling Anne a pick-me. She was just a child. She didn't know any better. In July of 1967, um, McFall is about 18 years old, and she's about eight months pregnant with Fred's child. And she's also gone. Like, she vanished. But she was never reported missing, and eventually her dismembered remains were found buried at the edge of a cornfield between Munchmarkle and Kempley in June of 1994. Her limbs had been carefully disarticulated, and many finger bones were missing from her body, likely to have been retained as keepsakes. Her unborn child may also have been cut from her womb. Fred initially denied um, that he killed McFall, but confided to one visitor following his arrest that he had stabbed her to death following an argument. However, the, in, that explanation was not consistent with the fact that her wrists were found with sections of dressing gown cord wrapped around them. So that suggested that she was actually restrained prior to her killing. The following month, Rena returned to live with Fred and the couple relocated to Lake House Caravan Park. Their relationship initially improved, but Rena left the following year, again leaving the children in his care. On these occasions, when Fred had no woman to supervise and care for the girls, he temporarily placed them in the care of the Gloucestershire Social Services. Ain't that some shit? Let's insert Rosemary Let's. 
who's eventually going to be Fred's next wife, Rose West. Um, so let's get into a little bit about Miss Rose, okay? Because, you know, everybody's got a beginning. So Rose West, who was born Rosemary Pauline Letts in Northam, Devon, to William Andrew Bill Letts and Daisy Gwendolyn Fuller, after a very difficult pregnancy, she was the fifth of seven children born into a poor family. Her mother suffered from depression and was given electroconvulsive therapy both during and immediately after her pregnancy. Um, some have argued that this treatment could have caused prenatal development injuries to Rose herself. Um, Rose grew up to be a moody teenager, prone to, prone to um, daydreaming, performing um, poorly at school. And she, after her parents separated, she lived with her mom and then attended Cleve School for six months. And then she moved in with her father. Um, her father suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and was prone to extreme violence and repeatedly sexually abused Letts and her oldest sister, Patricia. On the onset of puberty, Letts... Um, reportedly fascinated by her developing body, would deliberately parade naked or semi-naked around the house in the presence of her younger brother, Graham. On numerous occasions at the age of 13, she would also creep into the nine-year-old Graham's bed at nightfall and molest him and her youngest brother, Gordon. So, this is just so sad. So, Rose first encountered Fred at the Cheltenham bus stop in early 1969, shortly after Rose had turned 15, and by this time Fred was 27. Initially, Rose was repulsed by Fred's unkept appearance, but quickly became flattened, I mean, flattered, by the attention he continued to lavish on her over the following days as he would sit alongside her at the same bus stop. Um, Rose twice refused to go on a date with Fred, but allowed him to accompany her home. Having discovered that Rose worked in a nearby bread shop, Fred persuaded an unknown woman to enter the premise, the premises, and present her with a gift accompanied by the explanation that a man outside had asked her to present this gift to her. Minutes later, Fred entered the premises and asked Rose to accompany him on a date that evening, uh, which she would say yes. Shortly thereafter, Rose began a relationship with Fred, becoming a frequent visitor at the Caravan Park, where he lived with his two kids, um, you know, from his marriage with Rena. And Rose became a willing childminder to Fred's daughters, who she noted were neglected, and whom she initially treated with care and affection. On several occasions in the early days of their courtship, Rose insisted that she and Fred take the girls on excursions to gather wildflowers. Within weeks of her first meeting Fred, Rose left her job at the bread shop in order to become a full-time nanny to Fred's children. The decision was made with the agreement that Fred would provide her with sufficient money to give to her parents on Fridays to convince them that she's still obtaining a salary at the bread shop. A couple months later, Rose introduced Fred to her family, who were just aghast at their daughter's choice of partner. Rose's mother was unimpressed with Fred's boastful and arrogant behavior, and she correctly concluded that he was a pathological liar. Her father vehemently disapproved of, uh, disapproved of the relationship, threatening Fred directly and promising to call social services if he continued to associate with his daughter. As they should. So, any teenager that you tell that, like, you know, 
and you tell them, hey, you can't do this, they're going to do it, right? So her parents were like, you can't see this man. This man is too old for you. He's bad juju. Let's not do this. Um, she said, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. Um, she started having a full-on sexual relationship with this older man. Um, and then her parents started hearing rumors that she was engaging in prostitution at Fred's, Fred's caravan. Um, so her parents were like, uh-uh, we're not playing this game anymore. We are going to get you some help. So they put her in a home for troubled teenagers in Chetlaham in August of 1969. And she was only allowed to leave under controlled conditions. When she did go home, um, she snuck out to go see Fred. Then on her 16th birthday, um, she left the home for troubled teenagers to return to her parents while Fred was serving a 31-day sentence for theft and unpaid fines. Upon his release, Rose left her parents' home to move into the Chetlaham flat that he lived in. Shortly thereafter, Fred collected Charmaine and Anne-Marie from social services. Uh, Rose's father made one final effort to prevent his daughter from seeing Fred, and Rose was examined by a police surgeon in February of 1970 who confirmed that she was pregnant. In response, Rose was again placed into care but was discharged on the 6th of March on the understanding that she would terminate her pregnancy and return to her family. Instead, she went to go live with Fred. And her father um, told her, you're not welcome back in this house anymore. Like, we try to help you. You're not listening. Obviously, you think you're a grown adult. You go do your grown things with Fred and do not come back in this home. So, um... Uh, three months later, the couple vacated the Chetlaham flat and relocated the ground floor flat of a two-story house in Midland Road in Gloucester. On the 17th of October in 1970, Rose gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Heather Ann. So there is some speculation that Heather may have been sired by Rose's father, but again, nothing confirmed. Nobody denied. Anyways... Um, two months after this, Fred was in prison again for the theft of car tires and a vehicle tax disc. He remained in prison until the 24th of June in 1971. He served um, the six and a half month sentence, um, leaving Rose, to, who had just turned 17, to look after all three girls. Um, Charmaine and Anne-Marie were told to call Rose mommy. Weird. Okay, so according to Anne-Marie, um, she and Charmaine were frequently subjected to extensive physical and emotional abuse throughout the time that they lived under Rose's care at Midland Road. I mean, this is, this is a child raising children and she wasn't, you know, in the best, um mental capacity to be taking care of these kids you know and with her just having a newborn and her husband um being thrown in jail um charmaine repeatedly infuriated rose by her stoic refusal to either cry or display any sign of grief or servitude no matter how severely um she was treated despite the years of neglect and abuse charmaine's spirit had not been broken and she talked wistfully to Anne maria of the belief that their mommy will actually come and save them Anne-Marie later recollected her sisters repeatedly antagonized Rose by making statements such as, My real mummy wouldn't swear or shout at us, in response to Rose's scathing language. A childhood friend of Charmaine named Tracy Giles, who had lived in the upper flat of the Midland Road, 
would later recollect an incident in which he had entered the West's flat unannounced only to see Charmaine naked and standing upon a chair, gagged with her hands bound behind her back with a belt as Rose stood alongside the child with a large wooden spoon in her hand. According to Giles, Charmaine had been calm and unconcerned while Anne-Marie had been standing by the door with a blank expression on her face. Hospital records reveal Charmaine had received treatment for a severe puncture wound to her left ankle in the casualty unit of the Gloucester Royal Hospital on the 20th of March of 1971. This incident was explained by Rose to have resulted from a household accident. So, Rose, <laughs> um, this bee is believed to have actually murdered Charmaine shortly before Fred's release in 1971. Um, she is known to have taken Charmaine and Marie and Heather to visit Fred on the 15th of June. So he was released on the 24th of June. It is believed that Charmaine was killed on or very shortly after this date. So um, a forensic odontology confirming that Charmaine had died while Fred was still incarcerated. Uh, further testimony, testimony from Tracy Giles, Giles's mother, Shirley, corroborated the fact that Charmaine had died before Fred's release. In her later testimony at Rose's trial, Shirley stated that her two daughters had been playmates of Charmaine and Anne-Marie when her family lived in the upper flat of 25 Midland Road in 1971. Shirley further stated that after her family had vacated the upper flat in April of 1971, she had brought Tracy to visit Charmaine on one day in June, only for Tracy to be told by Rose, she's going to live with her mother and bloody good riddance. As with Giles' family, Rose explained Charmaine's disappearance to others who inquired about her whereabouts by claiming that Fred's first wife, Rena, had taken the eldest daughter to live with her in Bristol. She informed staff at Charmaine's primary school that the child had moved with her mother to London. When Fred was released from prison, he allayed Anne Marie's concerns for her sister's whereabouts by claiming her mother, Rena, had collected Charmaine and returned to her native Scotland. In her autobiography, Out of the Shadows, Anne-Marie, who was white while Charmaine was of part Asian ethnicity, recollects that when she asked why her mother had collected Charmaine but not her, Fred callously replied, She wouldn't want you, love. You're the wrong color. Charmaine's body was initially stowed in a coal cellar of Midland Road until Fred was released from prison. He, was laid, he later buried her naked body in the yard close to the back door of the flat, and he remained adamant that he had not dismembered her. A subsequent postmortem suggested that the body had been severed at the hip. This damage may have been caused by building work Fred conducted at the property in 1976. Several bones, particularly the patellae, sorry, um, finger, wrist, toe, and ankle bones were missing from Charmaine's skeleton, leading to the speculation that the missing parts had been retained as keepsakes. This would prove to be a distinctive finding in all of the autopsies of the victims exhumed in 1994. So remember how we talked about those rumors about Rose engaging in prostitution? Well... After Rose gave birth to her second child, um, she did begin to work as a prostitute. She was operating upstairs 
in an upstairs room at Cromwell Street, and she was advertising her services in a local contact magazine. Fred encouraged it, and he encouraged her to see clients in Gloucester's West Indian community through those advertisements. In addition to her prostitution, Rose engaged in casual sex with both male and female lodgers within their household and individuals Fred encountered via his work. She also bragged to several people that no man or woman could completely satisfy her. When engaging in sexual relations with women, Rose would gradually increase the level of brutality to which she subjected her partner or acts such as partially suffocating her partner or inserting increasingly large dildos into her partner's body. If the woman resisted or expressed any pain or fear, this would greatly excite Rose, and she would typically ask, aren't you woman enough to take it? To many of these women, it um, became apparent that Rose and her husband, who he did participate in threesomes with his wife, um, took a particular pleasure from taking women beyond their sexual limits, typically via sessions involving bondage. The... The couple openly admitted to taking a particular pleasure from any form of sex involving a strong measure of dominance, pain, and violence. To cater to these fetishes, they amassed a large collection of bondages and restraining devices, magazines, and photographs, later expanding this collection to include videos depicting bestiality and graphic sexual abuse of children. Rose controlled the, the family finances, and Fred giving her all his money. The room, the room that Rose used for her prostitution was known throughout the household as Mandy's room, Mandy being the working name Rose used when she was with her clients, and it had several hidden peepholes allowing Fred um, to watch her entertain her clients. Fred also installed a baby monitor in the room, allowing him to listen from somewhere else in the house. The room included a private bar and a red light outside the door, where it warned people that, you know, Rose was not to be disturbed. Rose carried the only key to this room around her neck, and Fred installed a separate doorbell to the household, which her clients were instructed to ring whenever they visited. Much of the money uh, that Rose had earned from prostitution was spent on home improvements. Okay. By 1977, Rose's father, Bill, had come to tolerate his daughter's marriage and developed a grudging respect for Fred. He had no choice. That was the man that Rose wanted to be with. And surprisingly, her dad and Fred opened a cafe that they ended up naming the Green Lantern, which was soon insolvent. Bill was also known to visit Cromwell Street to solicit his daughter's services. Which is disgusting. Um, by 1983, Rose had given birth to eight children, with actually three of them um, being fathered by her clients. Fred willingly accepted these children as his own and falsely informed them the reason their skin was darker than that of their siblings was because his great-grandmother was a black woman. Yeah. Now, remember that Charmaine had already been killed, and so Anne-Marie was, you know, um, Fred's daughter with Rena, and um, for those of you that are wondering what happened to Rena, 
well, Rena would um, kind of like sporadically come back and come check on her daughters. Um, she's known to have also have visited Fred's family to ask about, you know, her kids, like where they're at, how they're doing. Um, Fred's sister-in-law, Christine, later recollected that Rena was depressed and extremely anxious about her children. Um, so she was given Fred's Midland Road address and Rena was going to confront him to, to discuss or probably demand custody of the girls. Um, well, that was the last time that Rena was seen alive. She is believed to have been murdered by strangulation, possibly in the backseat of Fred's Ford Popular, and while likely intoxicated. When Rita's body was discovered, a short short length of metal tubing was found with her remains, leaving open possibility that she had been restrained and subjected to sexual assault prior to her murder. The body was extensively dismembered and placed in the plastic bags and buried close to the cluster of trees known as Eutree Coppice at Ladderbox Field. Now, that history of sexual assault, um, it continues. It's like, it's a dangerous cycle. And unfortunately, it's where Anne-Marie, you know, the daughter of of Fred and and Rena, um, was subjected to sexual assault by Rose and her father. Um, some of this is a little graphic that's coming up. So in September of 1972, Rose and Fred led eight-year-old Anne Marie to the cellar at 25 Crom- Cromwell Street. Um, the child was told to take her clothes off, with Rose tearing her dress from her body upon noting the child's hesitation. She was then stripped naked, um... And later, raped by her father, with Rose encouraging the entire ordeal. And she told Anne Marie, "Everybody does it to everybody, to every girl. It's a father's job. Don't worry, and don't say anything to anybody." Um, Fred and and Rose made it very clear that these assaults would continue to happen. Um, and so they would threaten Anne Marie with severely beating her if she ever told anybody. And so Rose would actually go and do some of the sexual abuse herself. Um, and she would bind her to furniture and encourage her father to grape her. Um, she basically degraded this child. I mean, I can't really go into the specifics of what what they did, but they did force Anne-Marie when she was 13 into prostitution. And then they told her that she needed to tell her clients that she was 16. Um, Rose was always present when the transactions occurred um, to make sure that Anne-Marie never told everybody how old she really was. Um, Rose took her to a local pub, insisting that she drink several glasses of barley wine, and several hours later, Fred arrived at the pub to collect Rose and Anne-Marie. Once they had left the premises, Anne-Marie was bundled into her her father's van and beaten by Rose, who asked her, do you think you could be my friend, before she was sexually abused by her father and stepmother, and honestly, that's really hard for me to get through that's I mean I just couldn't imagine hurting your own child and then like 
even as a stepmother, like, what the fuck is your problem? Like, how could you want to cause so much harm and hurt to another human being? Like, as a father to a, to their to their child, and as a woman to a child, like, what the fudge is wrong with people? Um. Anyways, sorry, I just I needed a moment. Um, let's talk about Caroline Owens. Okay. So Caroline, um, was a 17 year old who was hired to be the West's, uh, children's nanny. They had picked her up one night on a secluded country road as she hitchhiked from Tewkesbury to her home in Cinderford, having visited her boyfriend. Learning that Owens disliked her stepfather and was looking for a job, Fred and Rose offered her a part-time employment as a nanny to the three children then in their household, with a promise that she would be driven home each Tuesday. Several days later, Owens moved into 25 Cromwell Street and shared a room with Anne Marie, whom Owens noted was very withdrawn. Rose, who had begun, who had begun to engage in prostitution by this time, explained to Owens that she worked as a masseuse when the younger women inquired about the steady stream of men visiting her. When Owens herself became the recipient of West's overt sexual advances, she announced her intentions to leave Cromwell Street and return home. Um, knowing Owens' habits of hitchhiking along the A40 between Sandiford and to Kisbury, the West formulated a plan to abduct her for their shared gratification. Fred later admitted that the specific intent of this abduction was the rape and likely murder of Owens, but that his initial incentive was to determine whether his wife would be willing to at least assist him in the abduction. On the 6th of December, 1972, the couple lured Owens into their vehicle with an apology for their previous conduct and an offer to lift home. Initially, Owens believed that the West had been sincere in their apologies and obliged, believing that she had simply mistaken their earlier intentions. Rose joined her in the backseat with the explanation that she wanted a girl's chat as Fred drove. Shortly thereafter, Rose began to fall and fondle Owens as Fred questioned whether she had had sex with her boyfriend that evening. When Owens began to protest, Fred stopped the car and referred to Owens as a bitch and punched her into unconsciousness before he and Rose bound and gagged her with a scarf and duct tape. In her subsequent statement to the police, Owens stated that at Cromwell Street, she had been given a, drug cupped, a drugged cup of tea to drink before she... Um, was prolonged to sexual assault from the West. When Owen screamed, Rose smothered her with a pillow, further restrained her about the neck, and performed acts that I'm not going to talk about on this podcast because I'm not trying to get canceled this early. Um, basically, Owens kind of just gave up on trying to fight back with what was happening to her. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I laugh when I'm nervous and I'm just like, this whole, this whole thing makes me really nervous. If you look up pictures of Fred and Rose, Mary, like, they kind of, to me, look like this, like, corny little couple that, like, Fred kind of looks like he definitely would drop some dad jokes on you and 
um, Rose kind of looks like just like your regular schmegular woman that I feel like I, I would run into like at a Walmart and she would have like a basket full of whatever. And it just really bothers me that these two individuals are pure monsters. Just absolutely just terrible people. So everything that happened to Owens, um, her mother reported everything to the police and the West were arrested and they were charged with assault and decent assault, actual bodily harm and grape. The case was tried at Gloucester Magistrates Court on the 12th of January, 1973. But by this time, Owens decided that she couldn't deal with everything and she just didn't have it in her to be able to testify at that point. Um, because of her decision, unfortunately, all charges pertaining to her sexual abuse were dropped. And the West agreed to plead guilty to the reduced charges of indecent assault and causing actual bodily harm. Um, with each one of them being fined only 50 pounds. And the couple were allowed to walk free from court. When Owens heard of this news, she attempted suicide. Three months after the West assault trial, the couple committed their first known murder. The victim was a 19-year-old named Linda Gow, with whom Fred and Rose became acquainted through a male lodger in early 1973. Um, Gow regularly visited Cromwell Street and engaged in an affair with two male lodgers. On, 19th, on the 19th of April, she moved into her home on Cromwell Street. On or about April 20th, other tenants were told that she had been told to leave the household after she had hit one of their children. This story was later repeated to Gao's mother when she contacted the, excuse me, the West to inquire about her daughter's whereabouts. When Gao's dismembered body was found, the jaw was completely wrapped in adhesive and surgical tape to silence her screams, and two small tubes had likely been inserted into her nasal cavities to allow breathing. Long sections of string and sections of knotted fabric were also discovered with her remains. Gal had likely been suspended from holes carved into the wooden beams supporting the ceiling of the cellar. Fred later admitted that he had devised uh, for the purpose of suspending his victim's bodies and likely died of either strangulation or suffocation. Her dismembered body, missing five cervical vertebrae and patellae and numerous finger bones, were buried and an inspection pit beneath the garage. From their later investigations, police and forensic experts concluded that all the victims found in the cellar at 25 Cromwell Street had been murdered in this location, and that, like Gal, each had been dismembered in this location. Five victims were murdered and buried yeah. in the cellar between November of 1973 and April of 1975. The first of these victims, 15-year-old Carol Ann Cooper, was abducted on the 10th of November, 1973. Cooper lived in Pines Children's Home in Worcester and was abducted after spending... <laughs> Excuse me. My dog is having some issues. You good? Okay. Okay, they're not good. Hold on. 
Okay, sorry, all my dogs needed to go to the bathroom. They like to bark and then like loop around the house like they're defending me from something and then ask to go to the back there to go potty. But um, back to where I was. Cooper lived in the Pines Children's Home in Worcester and was abducted after spending the evening at a cinema with her boyfriend. She'd been waiting for a bus in, in Warden when she vanished and was likely dragged into Fred's car where her face was bound with surgical tape and her arms bound with braiding cloth before she was driven to Cromwell Street. At the West's address, Cooper was suspended from the wooden beams of the cellar ceiling before her abuse and murder, as she, as had been the case with Linda. Cooper died from strangulation and asphyxiation before her body was dismembered and buried in a shallow cubic grave on her cellar. Over the following 17 months, four further victims between the ages of 15 and 21 suffered similar fates. To that endured by Go and Cooper. Although the disarticulation conducted upon each successive victim, plus the paraphernalias discovered in each shallow grave, suggests each victim was likely subjected to greater abuse and torture than those previously murdered. So I'm going to pause the episode right there um, before we go into any further murders. Um, we're hitting like the hour mark pretty soon, and so. This is going to be a two-parter. So this is part one. Um, I'll be getting part two to you out within the next week. Um, I haven't decided if I wanted to do week weekly episodes. I don't have the time for that, honestly. Um, so I'm probably going to be doing them bi-weekly. Um, I promise. I pinky promise. I will say that even though this is kind of like the slow season at work, I did enroll into three classes this semester. <laughs> Um, I did some miscalculations on when I was going to graduate and when I was anticipating graduating by. I'm working on getting my degree in legal studies. Um, the goal is to become a paralegal. And so I need to hustle <laughs> to get my to get my degree. Um, but thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to um, endure it as much as I was able to, because I feel like I need to go watch like a, like a Disney movie or go eat a cookie or something after this. This is, this is, this is rough. You guys, this is not, I don't find this too pleasant. Um, I think I'm going to cut back on some of like the details of the victims because reading it out loud is just, I read a lot of this kind of stuff, but like having to like regurgitate it back out, just, I, it feels dirty, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna try to edit some of that out. Um, but yeah, I can't wait to see you guys on, or can't wait for you guys to join me on my next episode. Um, don't forget to follow my TikTok of the Nightly Nightmares podcast. You can find me on Instagram at the Nightly Nightmares podcast. Um, if you want to send a suggestion or anything that you want to hear, you can email me at the nightly nightmares podcast at gmail.com. And I'll be looking to hear from you guys soon. Okay. Toodaloo.